You're listening to CDCR Unlocked. I'm Tessa Outheis. And I'm Chrissy Hohobashvili. Not Joe Orlando. Joe has retired, and we wish him the best of luck in his retirement. Congratulations, Joe! Today's topic is the Division of Juvenile Justice, or DJJ, which, as many people are aware, is slated to close in 2023. And DJJ is actually a topic that is very close to Joe's heart when he started at CDCR um, with me on the same day nine years ago. He covered DJJ as his beat as a public information officer. And so he would answer questions to reporters and other people about the division and what they do to treat the youth in their care. And obviously, a lot of things are changing. Things are changing quickly, and people have a lot of questions. So Mike Cecilia sat down with DJJ director Heather Bolds to answer some of the many questions that people have about this transition, including what's next for incarcerated youth in California. Let's listen in. Hi, Dr. Bolds. Thanks for taking the time to talk today. Hi, Mike. It's my pleasure. So let's get right to it. Exactly what is happening to the Division of Juvenile Justice? So realignment, which was passed by the legislature in a bill called SB 823, and is basically transferring responsibility for the treatment of justice involved youth back to the counties. So it's part of Governor Newsom's vision for justice involved youth to be treated, rehabilitated, and supervised closer to their homes and families. So counties are being given funding and guidance for the building of their own programs in preparation for our closure, um, which is June 30th of 2023. For the youth in our charge currently, um, right now, that's about 500. They're going to continue to program and discharge normally through our current processes, which involve an appearance before our parole board. And so... Um, Our goal and our focus is to continue to care for them on a daily basis to provide the treatment that they need and want to help them continue to progress and meet those treatment goals. Um, And then once they go in front of the Juvenile Parole Board, as it has been for years, and they're discharged, then they'll be returned to their court of jurisdiction while they'll be supervised by county probation. We're no longer accepting new youth, except for a few rare exceptions that was allowed under SB 823. And so by attrition, at this point, we're expecting around 200 of those 500 youth to continue to discharge as they normally would, leaving us with about 300 youth that will transition back to the county to to, to continue their treatment and care. Okay, so for those 300 then, what is the process again for how they will eventually transition to the community? So we've developed a transition plan, and it really focused on doing an individual transfer of care, one-to-one plan, as we've been talking about. I think it's important to remember that these are unique youth with unique needs, uh, going back to unique counties. And so we're really uh, wanting to have those individual conversations. Um, What will occur, we've been working with our county partners to have those discussions on the best way to transition those youth back given all of those circumstances, the need to have programs available for the youth to go back to that meet that level of care. Um, the Because the youth will be changing our jurisdiction, they will be going back to court as a part of that process. And then through the court process, their placement will be finalized. So again, those conversations with all the local partners, judicial counsel have been very critical and will be continue to be critical as we walk down this path. Sounds good, but exactly how does it work? So um, 
During the Feral lawsuit, DJJ implemented what we call the Integrative Behavior Treatment Model. So it's a holistic approach to treatment at DJJ, um, which includes all parts of the youth treatment, mental health programs, education, job training, interventions to target those risks that we've identified that could lead to reoffense. So as we walk down the path for closure, those principles continue to be critical to our mission and what we're doing every day. So as the youth begins to approach the return to the community, we do have reentry coordinators that help on the discharge piece. Um, what we're switching to is recognizing that for youth that aren't going to discharge, we need to look at our treatment plans in terms of more of a short-term basis of what can we accomplish while the youth is with us, and then how can our reentry coordinators, our parole agents, and our youth correctional counselors work to set up continued goals that the youth can, can uh, work on once they return back to the counties. Um, so part of the big changes we've been working with county probation to, in, you know, uh, invite them and uh, have them participate in our case conferences, which are the the areas and the, the the process where we map out what those next treatment steps will be. We review the youth's progress. We recognize the youth's successes, and we help them kind of uh, figure out next steps for the things that they need to continue to work on. So having our county partners as a part of that process will be important to that warm handoff. They get to know the youth as well, and we can partner together on, again, what can we do in the time we have left with these youth, and then what can they pick up when the youth returns to them. Um, and then I think the other thing that's helpful is as we're part of that court process, we'll be, you know, we'll be sending documentation to the court, probation, all the partners, including public defenders, the DAs, to let them know where the youth is at, what the youth has accomplished. Um, we want them to get credit for everything that they've done in DJJ and the good work that they've been really trying to accomplish, um, as well as then allow for the discussion of what placement makes sense for them. One of the um, benefits of uh, local care is different uh, types of programs will be available that maybe we've not had in DJJ, so there can be those discussions of a uh, treatment program, a camp, a step-down program. So I think those are important to continue to, again, work with our stakeholders on and think about as we're mapping out treatment goals for our youth. So then that just sort of brings us to uh, the inevitable. Is all of the Division of Juvenile Justice closing? Yes, all of the facilities will be closing. The Pine Grove Youth uh, Conservation Camp in Amador County will remain open to serve county youth and train them as wildland firefighters. Uh, CDCR, which already operates adult inmate fire camps, will be taking over Pine Grove as of next year. So it will no longer be considered a DJJ facility. So then, yes, all of DJJ will be closing. And where will those youth come from? Different counties. What the counties will need to do is is to execute a contract with CDCR that allows the courts to place a youth at Pine Grove. Um, and so we have several counties that are interested in that, and we're working with them to ex execute those contracts. Okay, and that'll provide a template then for the rest of the counties to follow if they want to send kids there? Yes. And then what will happen to the staff at DJJ? So, you know, this has been an unbelievably challenging time for our staff, um, and I really have to express and, and say how proud I am of everyone that's hung in there. Um, you know, we've, uh, and, and this isn't just due to the closure announcement. I think it's, it's fair to acknowledge that prior to the closure announcement, it was also announced we would be moving under a new department. So, you know, it's been really several years of um, 
uncertainty of, of what this means for everyone. Um, and so uh, they've hung in there. They continue to care and treat for our kids um, while at the same time trying to resolve a, a host of issues regarding their own lives and careers. And on top of that, dealing with all the changes brought on with COVID. So um, it's really been amazing and inspiring. Um, and, and again, I just, I can't express how much that means to me as the one who oversees this division and trying to, um, you know, map out everyone's next steps. I couldn't do that without the staff and their dedication and knowing that uh, they're focused on those, those youth every day and supporting each other. Um, but to answer your question, really it depends upon the bargaining unit that the staff belongs to. So there are separate processes for each and our senior staff have been very active in working with our labor partners who have also been very cooperative, um, working with our partners at uh, CDCR, DAI, DAPO, DRP. <laughs> um, they've been fantastic in coming to the table to be able to explore options for our staff, landing spots and, and processes that will um, be, you know, give the most opportunity. Um, and, and this, you know, especially uh, our staff, um, many of them have dedicated their whole careers to DJJ, and so I think it's an, it's important to um, acknowledge that dedication by by working as hard as we can to make sure everyone has a landing spot. Um, at the facilities, we've been you know sharing information and, and helping staff find those those labor spots. Um, as always, there's uh, questions and concerns. There's uh, you know uh, there's been times over these last couple of years uh, we haven't had answers, which has been challenging. I think we're now getting to the point where more answers can be shared. Um, we're meeting with each of those categories and labor unions because each of the processes are different so we don't want to add to confusion by sharing broad information with everyone we're having very targeted conversations with staff um, and encouraging and then we're encouraging our, our staff to take advantage of those placement opportunities that are that are available based on their uh, classifications um, the governor has approved a retention stipend to help retain staff throughout the transition. Um, and we've been able to create, again, those opportunities for staff to stay with us till closure and then transfer to um, the adult side, um, which has been beneficial. It's, uh, it's been two years now since the announcement. And so being able to try to uh, get staff uh, feeling better about, okay, I'm going to be here, but I can stay and help get DJJ through the end has been important. Um, but again, I, I, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Um, it's, it's, it's not easy. Sometimes things go smooth, smooth. Sometimes things uh, don't go as smooth as we want them to be as we are navigating all of this. Um, there are many moving parts. There's six bargaining units, but we're making progress. We're gonna continue to work on it every single day. Um, myself and the executive team are dedicated to uh, being here until the last moment and, and continuing to have these conversations and working to the very end to get um, folks where they need to be. Um, but again, I just have to say I'm so grateful for the professionalism and dedication of our staff during this process. I think um, Resiliency is often a word we use in DJJ. We have very resilient staff. Um, we've gone through many changes, and so 
um, again, I just, it, it impresses me every day and I'm grateful and thankful for what they do. Well, this transition really marks an historic end of an era. I want to. I wonder if you've really thought about what the legacy of DJJ will be in the history books. You know, I have, um, but I'll be honest. It's a, it's a sometimes hard to think about. <laughs> so um, I've been with DJJ since since 1999. It's been my whole career. As with many of our staff, it's been their whole career. Um, I started off as a as an intern. Never in a million years expected to be the director. Um, I was fortunate to have a lot of opportunities presented to me that I was able to uh, kind of take advantage of and and um, be able to to stay with the department. Um, and the reason that I wanted to stay with the department is because of the work that we do. Uh, we change lives every day. We have youth who are at a very critical time in their lives. Adolescence is a very critical time. Um, for making decisions about who are you going to be as an adult? How do you become a healthy individual? These are kids that have uh, often been lost within lots of other different systems. This is an opportunity to help them figure out how to make those healthy choices in adults and turn things around so they don't continue to reoffend, so they don't end up in the adult system. So it's that work, watching a youth progress, watching a youth grow, seeing them be successful after they leave, getting that phone call of, you've helped me and here's what I'm doing now. I have, I'm in college, I'm in, going to law school, I've got kids, I've got a family. Um, that's the reason why so many of our staff have stayed for so long and done this. So I think the legacy, as I think about it, I think it's, it is changing those lives. It's recognizing the important work that we do. Um, we've had a long road. I, I, I know kind of talking to staff that have been there before I started, looking at all the history books, uh, the old pictures we have from when our facilities started, you know, decades ago. Um, we've always remembered that these are kids. We're not dealing with prisoners, we're not dealing with inmates, it's kids we took fishing, it's kids we taught how to farm. Um, there were times where we took kids to the movies. Um, I think in the 90s, like everywhere else, um, everyone lost their way for a bit. Uh, the term super predator and uh, the population got higher when I started at Chad in 99 there was over a thousand kids there with around the same staffing model that we have now. So I saw staff that wanted to do the best job possible, but were just overwhelmed. And so I think Farrell, when we came to the Farrell lawsuit, um, it's challenging. Nobody wants to be under a lawsuit. There's lots of steps that you need to take. But what I also heard from staff as we were working through it was, Thank goodness, now we'll get the resources we need to help these kids. I mean, that says something about the people working there. So the Farrell lawsuit was a suit that was brought by a member of the public uh, against the Division of Juvenile Justice, and there was, I guess, a court master set up during this period of time? Yes. There were basically, uh, I believe, six different dissent decrees 
Um, we had an expert for each of those and a special master that oversaw the whole lawsuit. But, but when you, in a nutshell, what it basically did is change every single piece of how DJJ operates, from operations to uh, behavior behavior models to our reinforcement system to how we account for negative behaviors for the treatment models we put into place for expanding our mental health care making sure our medical care we had enough uh, medical doctors and nurses to give the correct care dental um, it was all-encompassing and I think it, it, what it allowed us to do was get back to who we were, which was treating kids. It, um, between that and some other uh, legislation that uh, narrowed who could come to DJJ, we were able to increase our staffing, our population went down, and we focused on what we needed to do to treat the youth, target their needs, come together, as a treatment team and work from one common goal and and be able to really help the youth address what brought them there and give them the skills to be successful upon release. So um, we've come a, a long way. So again, I, I you know what I want our, our legacy to be is is again, our mission has always been to take care of kids. And we've had staff that are dedicated to that. We've put programs in place to make sure that we're providing that care, working on that. Um, the work we do matters. One of the areas where you have had extraordinary successes with the sexual behavior treatment program, which you personally pioneered and designed. Can you talk about that a bit? Yes, I can talk about that. It, it's... Um, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, I, I worked on that project for over 10 years. Um, it was, I could not have, uh, we could not have had the program we have today without the staff that were working all of those units. Um, but uh, we're very proud of the program that we put into place. Um, an independent academic study kind of showed the model was, uh, you know, twice twice as effective in preventing future sexual offenses as kind of traditional therapy. Um, the treatment model is very comprehensive. Um, it, what we looked at, so if we were to step back during the time we started implementing it and, and creating it, um, that was really when the discussions were more openly occurring and recognizing that juveniles are very different from adults. Traditional uh, sexual offending treatment tended to be geared towards that adult model. Um, there was a recognition that recidivism rates tend to be much lower for juveniles in terms of reoffending sexually, um, but reoffending criminally was higher, and a recognition that the treatment really needed to be focused on what helps adolescents make good decisions, skill building, uh, understanding, and, and healthy emotions. Um, being able to create healthy relationships, being able to understand healthy sexuality. So it was built into the model uh, had many different pieces where the youth on the unit basically was able to get reinforced, practice those skills 
all the time in, in the different environments. It's a group model where you have the youth moving through stages and different homework assignments that they present in a group format. Some of those they prevent, present individually to various staff members. There's a clinical team that works with the youth on working through trauma, which is uh, incredibly important to all of the DJJ population. Uh, what you tend to find for dealing with sexual offenses is how that trauma uh, cre- kind of lends to some of the choices the youth make to act out sexually, so you really need to address that. Um, pro-social development was a, was a huge piece of it. We have a movie program where you can watch the youth watch uh, movies and then kind of talk through them. It's a book program where the youth read a book and talk through them, recognizing that sometimes it's easier to work through and talk about things that matter to you in someone else's life than your own. So it's again, it's recognizing lots the challenge, the difficulty of this work, the importance of working through that. And, and I think that's really where we found the success. Um, and the recidivism rates among the, uh, our, those youth who have gone through that program is, is gratefully very low. So, um, I'm very, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it is a point of pride. It's something that, um, it, it, it was a lot of work to put into place. It was a lot of dedication. Um, I have to acknowledge the teams again. That was a part of that when we were in Farrell. Um, right before we were about to implement a big component of it, um, there was the announcement in 2013 that DJJ was going to close. Um, that announcement, that decision was modified. But the reason that I want to point that out is because we were at a very critical time in implementing this program. And we could have had the team go, well, we're closing. We're not going to do it. And as a part of implementing this, we did a lot of team training. I met with the, the units. We all got together. We worked through this together. We implemented steps together. And I remember um, being in the, the meeting where we were talking about this next step and getting it going and being worried that, oh, I'm going to get, why are we doing this? We just, they just announced we're closing. But instead, what I got was, let's do this, because if they're going to shut us down, they'll shut us down with the best sex behavior treatment program out there. How amazing is that? And so we did. We continued and we marched forward. And um, that's why we have what we have today. Is that template available now for counties and others to follow? So the curriculum itself belongs to DJJ, but but um, have been having discussions on with folks to be able to happy to be able to provide trainings to um, offer offer what we've developed to the counties for those that are interested. So we're continuing to have those conversations. What do you hope people are, will remember when they think of the Division of Juvenile Justice in California? I, I hope that they remember that we did offer hope for youth when other systems have failed. Um, we've had marvelous successes at DJJ. And we hear from youth often who uh, maybe didn't even recognize that during their stay, um, but credit us for kind of turning their lives around. Um, it's a testament to our staff. Uh, it's always a personal interaction that helps um, you know, we have youth that call 
back to talk to our staff all the time, and it's because they look to them for guidance. Um, as we were changing, you know, talking during feral and kind of changing and remembering, going back to our roots and our mission, we would talk about, you know, we, we are raising these kids. Not that their parents weren't involved or their parents aren't important, but we're with them every day. Um, and so who do they call when they're nervous about stuff? They call the staff that they were able to talk to. Who do they want to share their successes with? The staff they were able to connect with. Um, so I think, uh, in you know, we've had those successes. Recently, we've uh, really expanded and developed our academic uh, courses to be able to provide college to youth, really get the them on a, a good footing for continuing that path that they want to go down, CTE availability to kind of figure out if college isn't for them, maybe here's some other steps that really give them a strong footing for getting a career once they're out, which is huge in order to, um, again, success upon release. They're getting job as firefighters. That's a huge win. <laughs> Hopefully that will continue to expand. Um, our youth are winning awards for songwriting. They're having their poetry published. Um, so, you know, these are, these are young people. These are kids. They have the opportunity and the ability to change and grow. They're not fixed. They're not static. They've made some bad choices, but that doesn't make them uh, bad individuals. That doesn't mean that they can't become successful you know, members of this society. They're so, um, I've always been impressed with our youth's ability to survive the things that they've went through and to be where they're at today, to learn to grow from that. Uh, they have tremendous abilities and skills and talents. And so what I hope people remember with DJJ is, is again, um, we were there for the youth. Even when we've had our struggles, we always focused on our mission, which was taking care of the kids. And um, we've had successes that we should celebrate. Dr. Boltz, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Sure. Happy to be here. <laughs> So I think that was a really unique look at how the state has historically worked with troubled youth and what you know has worked and hasn't worked. And, you know, the ultimate goal, though, is to help and is rehabilitation. Definitely. It's always fascinating to listen to Dr. Bold's talk because she has such a a passion and the expertise um, for how we care for youth in California. And you could really tell in listening just how how much she appreciates both the youth and the staff at DJJ for how dedicated they are and have been, um, especially over the last few years of not only uncertainty, but also a global pandemic. They've been very dedicated to those youth and to making sure that their care continues after DJJ closes. Absolutely. And if you need more information, you can check out the DJJ website. There is all kinds of wonderful resources there for you, FAQs and uh, videos and calendars, and they're all there for you uh, to check out. So thank you, Dr. Bolds, for your time, and thank you for listening. That's going to do it for this episode of CDCR Unlocked. Look for new episodes featuring more stories and helpful Q&As every other Thursday. Mm -hmm.